and this is Pastor Daniel McGee with Connection Church in New York City. Thank you for listening to our church's weekly podcast. We hope God uses this sermon to encourage you and to increase your faith in Him. If you'd like to know more about our church, please check out our website at ConnectionNYC.com or like us on Facebook at ConnectionNYC. Grace and peace be with you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, we're talking about victory. Specifically, victory in Jesus. But I want to begin by imagining with you the purity and the beauty of a bride on her wedding day. I was very cautiously given this beautiful wedding veil from Shana here in our congregation, and she let me use this. I promised not to mess it up, so I'll move the water bottle now to keep everything away from it. But I want you to look at this every time you hear the word unveiled tonight in the sermon. And here's what I want you to think about when you hear that. Think about the purpose behind a veil on a wedding day. The bride, dressed in white to symbolize purity. Think about this in the spiritual, pure sense that Christ intended. When he set humans on the earth and said, be fruitful and multiply, that one woman should leave one man and they should be joined together and become one. And this woman, as she turns the corner at the back of the church, and the entire congregation rises, and they all turn and look. Nobody has a better view than the groom, standing awaiting his beautiful bride. And as she begins to walk down the aisle, she passes every single row, but no one can catch a glimpse of her face. Why? Because she's veiled. She wears the veil to symbolize the truth that she is saving herself for one person. There will be one person to remove this veil, to see her. Now the symbolism here works in so many powerful ways I couldn't even describe them, but just think in this way at least. That she is saying to this man, I am going to allow you to see me like no one else sees me. I know that, you know, you can really see her face through the veil, and I know that when he lifts it, then everyone can see her. But the symbolism is there. That she is making a, a declaration. 
in front of God as her witness and everyone in the room that she is allowing her groom to behold her in a way that no one else will. And as he unveils her, depending on when it happens in the service, they, in front of God and everyone, state their vows, these promises. This thing that we call in the Christian ceremony of marriage, their covenant with one another. Which usually end with, until death do you part. This covenant that lasts the whole time they are on earth. Have that imagery in your mind as we dive into the scriptures on this first Sunday of Advent and start all the way in the beginning at the Old Testament in Genesis. And we see how throughout the course of history, a similar image has been coming into view. Jesus is being unveiled. And as it happens, slowly throughout the course of history, we see at the end, finally, victory is unveiled in Jesus. So, let's begin with that in your mind in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is a, this is one of the most hopeless and hopeful verses in all of Scripture, right here, packed into a few lines. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The you here is the serpent. You see, Eve has just been deceived in the garden. Adam came along and joined in the deception. And now God is communicating to them the consequences of this. And he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and also between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, death entered creation, and Satan was granted a temporary reign over earth. This is the bruising the heel. Satan is given the ability to bruise the heel of the offspring of Eve. He has power. If you don't believe that there is evil power in the world, open up Facebook. Turn on the news. Talk to someone who's served in the armed forces. Talk to someone who's a school teacher. Death entered creation. And here in the beginning, though, God revealed for the first time his plan to conquer it once and for all. Did you hear it? It's there at the end. You, the offspring of Eve, shall bruise his head. Some translations interpret this word crush. You shall crush his head. The Hebrew word actually has a a big spectrum of understanding. And it all revolves around extinguishing, destroying, crushing, bruising, causing damage to. God reveals here that with this promise that he is going to have victory. And he begins to lift the veil. 
This is a hint of the one who is to come to claim victory over sin and death once and for all. Eve received this promise that began with the unveiling of victory, but she didn't live long enough to see the veil lifted all the way. She just lived long enough to have hope. She received this promise from God that there would come one one day who will crush this enemy who you could not conquer. As the people of the world continue to explore depravity and exploit the common graces that were given to them by God, he continued his plan through one called Noah. You may remember him as the one, maybe you learned uh, a song or heard the story of Noah's Ark. This was God's way of continuing the unveiling of Jesus. For all of the land was depraved and unrighteous, and God actually wanted to destroy all of it. But he found one righteous man, and he saved the world through this one man and his family, Noah. The next big revelation in the progression of this unveiling takes place in the account of Abram, who would later be known as Abraham. So from this point forward, I'll say Abraham, so as to avoid confusion. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to him to bring about blessing through Abraham. Before we read this verse, though, I want to remind you that this is so early on in the earth's history that things like nations and tribes and tongues do not exist. So forget everything you know about nation, nation-making and nation national history. There was never a nation. There were just people on the earth. There were just families who lived on the earth. There weren't even, most historians believe, organized clans or tribes at this time. So people are just dispersed a little bit on the earth and listen to this promise that God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the New Testament book of Galatians, Paul tells us clearly what was meant by that, if that sounded a little confusing to you. Read with me in the book of Galatians. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, as if the nations would be blessed through many of Abraham's children, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then Paul clarifies, who is Christ. Now, if you're ever wondering how to interpret Scripture, I had a seminary professor who had a great line that he used in seminary class. He said, if you're ever wanting the best interpretation of Scripture, look in Scripture. Especially in these instances where a writer in the New Testament, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, clarifies or reinstates with new information an Old Testament promise. So that's what's happening here. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia in the New Testament, after Jesus was born, after Jesus died, after he rose again, even after he ascended into heaven, 
Paul, a follower of Jesus, writes to them and says, do you remember Jewish Christians in Galatia when there was the promise that was made to Abraham and his offspring? That wasn't meant to be the whole nation of Israel that was going to be the blessing. It meant one offspring, Christ. So the veil lifts a little higher. The promise, this promise, um, back into the Old Testament days now, it comes to a man, Abraham, who is 99 years old and has one son. Let me read it to you again, the beginning of it. I will make you a great nation. Remember, he's 99 years old and he has one son. Son's name is Ishmael. Later in the text of this covenant, continuing on in Genesis chapter 12, if you read it later, it turns into this eternal blessing for all nations. God tells Abraham it will not be Ishmael, actually, who saves the world, but a promised son who comes from the line of Isaac, through whom God will bless the nations. This promised son, God says, will come from Abraham's wife, which is not where Ishmael came from. So God tells Abraham at 99, you have a future son that you haven't had yet who's going to come from your 90-year-old wife. And that future son will bear a son who will save the world. So the veil lifts a little higher. We know to look now not just at a son of Eve. We know not to just look at a son of Abraham. We know to look at the son Isaac who comes from Abraham and Sarah. God fulfills that promise and Isaac is born miraculously. Sarah gives birth to a baby boy. He fathers Jacob and Esau. That is a whole other story in and of itself. You can explore later. It has lots of drama. If you like watching shows like Scandal on TV, you would love the story of Jacob and Esau. So, they have a very adventurous life. Uh, then Jacob fathers 12 sons who we just finished chronicling. So I'm not going to cover much of that. You can just go back and listen to the Dreamer series that we just finished here at Connection Church. You know their life was filled with calamity. We called them the dysfunctional family and God showed us that he is at work even in the midst of dysfunction. So now we've come through Isaac to get to Jacob and we find Joseph Listen to what happens here with the 12 sons. It, it can be expected when Jacob is dying that when he brings his 12 sons together, he will say to Reuben, the firstborn, you are the one who will carry on the line. Maybe we can look for Jesus in the line of Reuben, but that's not what happens. Reuben is skipped because he's unstable. Then Jacob moves on to the next two, Simeon and Levi, and Jacob tells them, because of your violent ways which include murder and animal abuse, you will be passed over. And we get to the fourth son, Judah. And to Judah, his promise is the forever rule. God unveils here the line that the ruler... Now, when Jacob gets this promise passed on to Judah about a forever ruler... The nation that God had promised to Isaac, uh, promised to Abraham that he had created, they were in captivity. Here is God 
saying to Joseph, I'm sorry, saying to Judah, you will be the forever king over a nation that is in the midst of slavery. Now I know we have hope and anticipation at Christmas, but we have that in a different way than they had then. We have the hope and the anticipation with the full revelation already completed. We're looking back, knowing that Jesus did come and live and die and raise again. They're on the other side of history. They're in the midst of slavery. And they are being told, look for hope. Oh, how they must have anticipated the hope, the coming Savior. So it's because this beginning section of the unveiling of history that we learn point number one. If you have the notes that you were handed when you walked in, you can feel free to fill in the blanks and take this home. Use this as your spiritual food this week, that God will give you victory throughout your week. Point number one is this. God works on his time. Wouldn't it have been great if God had just told Eve right away, you know what? Your firstborn son is going to come and he's going to conquer the world and it's going to be done. Isn't that how we kind of like it in our instant gratification society? We live in such an instant society that the unveiling that happens here in Scripture almost seems irresponsible. Why would God let all that collateral damage happen over the hundreds of years that are the Old Testament history when he could have just fixed it instantly? That's how we think. But uh, also, we place an incredible burden on timelines and accomplishing works. This has to do with the way that not only we are raised, but the way that we work. We work in a deadline-based society. It's not even true only outside of the church. Uh, Even here at Connection Church, which was just started five years ago by Pastor Daniel and his wife Carrie and Lindsay, my wife, and I, and to us, your stories, the people who are in this room, make Connection Church a success. The ways that you have impacted us, that New York City has changed us, they make this church plant a success. But believe it or not, even though people's lives have been changed, relationships restored, this neighborhood would be a different place if Connection Church disappeared tomorrow, all of these things are a testament to the fact that God is slowly unveiling his plan here in Astoria. However, there's a timeline attached even to churches and church planting. We've been given deadlines by financial partners that are outside of us to help fund and pray for connection. And although we have been very blessed and many have stayed, some have fallen off because the church hasn't progressed as quickly as their timeline says it should. But we praise God that he works in his time. 2017 has been the best year we've ever seen here at Connection. As I look out at many of you who have been along for this ride for more than a couple of years, I'm certain you will agree to that. We've baptized six people. We've added six family members. We've given more money to mission endeavors than ever before. We've hosted people from our neighborhood at community events. The list goes on and on. The point is this. We as the church, as Christians, celebrating Christ must push back on our desire 
for things to happen when we want them to. Certainly God wants us to pray. He wants us to pray expecting him to move, right? He doesn't want doubtful prayers. The New Testament book of James will teach you that about prayer. He wants people who expect him to move. But we have to remember that we have a different perspective than God. From his throne, the plan that he is enacting on earth is perfect. Even when, from our throne, it doesn't look that way. He is using you and I and our church and others to make his plan a reality. And we have to fight against this instant gratification urge that we have and trust that he is working on his time and not ours. So, point number one, God works on his time. Point number two in your notes reminds us that we also need to trust that God's plan is better than mine. You could even put your own name in there if you want. It'd be a good reminder if I woke up every single morning and said, before I even let my feet hit the floor, God's plan is better than Larry's today. Many mistakes would, be, would have been avoided if I had done that. Let's see this in Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the unveiling continues. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was written as a promise from God to King David. And sometimes prophecies have a twofold way of unveiling themselves. This one is like that. The first way is through. David's firstborn son, Solomon. And King Solomon did do these things in this passage. He established the kingdom better than Saul before David did, like God said. He built the temple. But this also had future implications. Because Jesus will come from the line of David. And so the veil is lifted higher. Now we know where to look yet again. Not just from Eve's son, not just from Abraham's son, Isaac, not just from the line of Judah, but now from David, who does, if you're wondering, fall in line with all of those. We know that all of these things and Israel had become secure in its corporate thinking that this great crusher of the serpent the victor, they had become pretty confident in thinking that he would come as a reigning warrior king from the line of David. This was their plan. And they were confident in it 
because of the prophets of old and because of the oppression that they had endured for so many generations. Later, though, God continues the unveiling by announcing through whom this king would come. Isaiah chapter 7, listen to this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the type of verse you're traditionally going to hear at an Advent service or a Christmas Eve service because it is one of the first specific announcements of Emmanuel, the name for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This one, who is to be a blessing for all nations, will be God with us. That is what the word Emmanuel means. And then further in Isaiah chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he has made the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The imagery here is indicative of the whole story that we are immersed in right now. This prophecy in, in sorry, this prophecy earlier in chapter 8 is describing the darkness that Israel sees when they look to the earth to find what they need. When they look for salvation and for sustenance at the earth, they find darkness and gloom. But here, chapter 9 opens with those beautiful words, but there will be no gloom. It is the imagery of the sunrise. Israel, lift your head. You are looking to the earth for salvation. You're looking for this king who will come and destroy the enemies here on earth. You're looking for sustenance. You're looking for a physical person who will lead you and who will get you a government that's strong and you can then declare your reign over all the earth. You're looking down into darkness, Israel. And in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, the prophecy continues, but there will be no gloom. The sun will rise. It will not be from the earth that you are saved from this darkness. It will be from heaven. For unto us, the verse that Johnny just read, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In verse 7, God clearly explains what is going to mark this king's eternal reign. And in it, we find one of the most powerful unveilings in this whole story. Because it's not what we expect. The unveiling might be actually incredibly counterintuitive to how we think. This may be the one that you and I need to spend the most time as Christians who live in America. We may need to spend the most time 
meditating on and pondering and fighting against our culture to be reminded of this unveiling right here. That is that God's kingdom is not established and upheld with military power or a united front or a dominant culture or so on and so forth. The eternal kingdom of God as prophesied here in Isaiah and as made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, is established and upheld with justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. You see, God's plan, it just keeps getting better. Just like the beginning illustration of the bride as the groom begins to unveil her face, it starts out with the chin that's not that pretty. And it gets up to the lips, which are much prettier than the chin. And finally, the nose dives back down again. But then finally, where do you get to? The eyes. It just gets better and better as you lift it. And you look into the eyes of your bride, those of you that are married. And your eyes begin to fill with tears because you know what is happening. And you see for the first time with such an impact what is going on in front of you and that is that she is showing herself to you in a way that you didn't expect that you couldn't have counted on that you don't deserve and that's what god is doing for us here he's unveiling jesus in a way that we don't expect he's saying you're looking for something that is your mind it's something that you crafted the way that you think the world should run the way that you think the world should be conquered the way that you think the good news should go out but here's how i will do it with justice and with righteousness. That is, things by the law of God, whom Jesus, we learned later, came to fulfill and did fulfill. And by righteousness, that all things that are wrong would be made right. Not that all things that that are against Larry would be made for Larry. That's not what righteousness is. And you can put your name in that blank too. It's not that all things that are against me would be made for me. It's that all things that are wrong would be made right, that truth will reign. This unveiling, this final act of unveiling happens in this beautiful passage in Isaiah 53. Listen to this as I read. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Revealed is similar to unveiling. For he grew up before like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is the chin and the nose, remember? He doesn't look like anything that we would desire. He was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne, he has taken on our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement 
that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus unveiled victory when he bore your iniquities and showed you victory in replace. Number three, how does this all happen? How does, going back to Genesis chapter 3, how does the serpent be destroyed by the offspring that comes from Eve, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Judah, from David? How does he come from the one born of a virgin, the one called Emmanuel? How does it happen? How does that lift, the, lift us from the gloom and show us the sunrise? How does it unveil victory? It's because God crushed our enemy by being crushed. When you step out of these doors, when you go into work this week, when you talk on the phone with that client, when you look into the eyes of the spouse who is now distant, when you discipline your children, when you go about your way, remember that Jesus has unveiled victory not by being the reigning king, the master, the one head and shoulders above the, uh, the rest who destroyed the enemy like you and I would imagine. No, he did it by being crushed on his heel. Remember that part? From Genesis chapter 3, he shall crush his heel. You see, Jesus was bruised, but then he rose. And his crushing is what crushed the enemy. For at the resurrection, you and I find a sunrise. The veil is off. And in the wedding ceremony, the one over the ceremony says to the groom, you may kiss your bride, and the two unite as one. 
And it's that second moment of seeing one another like you've never seen before. And the two become one flesh. And in the same way, you and I are called into this by these last few verses. Out of the anguish of his soul, in verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. When Christ takes your iniquities, he lifts the veil on your life. Church, he sees you like no one has ever seen you before. And you know that person because you are that person. And when given the chance to throw you away after seeing what you know and what I know about you and about me, instead, he initiates the covenant. He chooses you as his bride. He chooses this church as his bride for eternity. Jesus unveiled victory. This Christmas season, walk as a victor. But remember that this victory came about in a very different way than you and I usually think of. Victory coming about. Let's pray. Father, we are burdened by our own sin. Even saying something like I just said out loud in the room gets tense about how each of us know our inner thoughts. We know our sin. If, in fact, if they were laid bare in front of everyone here, there would be not one person in this room who would be humiliated God, thank you for lifting the veil and finding beauty in your son, Jesus. Thank you for the crushing death that he endured so that the enemy could be crushed once and for all. May we find victory in Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen.